0: Uh, welcome, we're glad you're here tonight, we have uh, four different people teaching this, the four different weeks of this class and uh, Cody did the first week church and friendship, uh, the second week was Tyler, Tyler did uh, uh, marriage and friendship, I'm doing friendship and affinity and if you don't know what that really is, I, that's what we're going to try and explain and talk about the upside and the downside of affinity and what we can kind of do about that. And then uh, uh, next week, Chad Miguel is here. He's going to be talking about friendship and uh, singleness. And uh, so he has a girlfriend now, so I don't know if he's really qualified anymore. But anyway, <laughs> uh, so come on in, Shane. Sorry. Um, so listen, um, I'm going to go pretty fast through my material. I'm just warning you. Uh, We are going to record it and podcast it, though, so if if you're a note-taker, maybe don't take too many notes tonight, and and you can get it later on the podcast. Um, uh, The reason is because I want to get to Will and and interview him. I'm really excited about talking to him and having him expound more on affinity, friendship, community, and those kinds of things, because he's in the process of writing a book about it, and um, uh, we'll tell you more about Will when he gets up here, but... Uh, And and my feeling is that once we get Will up here and he does his thing and I interview him and we talk, at the end you're all going to go, why didn't you just have Will up there the whole time? And really I have to kind of set him up by telling you what we're talking about. So that's why I'm going to kind of go fast. It's going to be kind of academic in the beginning, then it's going to get more application driven and then we'll get to Will. Uh, And also one of the things that uh, I think it would be helpful if more people did this, you know, people want to write stuff down that we have up here, you can always take pictures of the slides and that that might be a quicker way of being able to uh, do things like that. So, affinity. Here we go. Uh, Define affinity. Affinity is an individual level of cohesiveness, social bonding, identification, and conformity between two people resulting in mutual attraction to the other and... An abiding by the standards of a particular group. We do this naturally. In other words, here's another way to say it. We're always asking ourselves, what do we have in common with somebody else that might connect us in some way? What do we have in common with somebody else that we both like, maybe, that might connect us in some way? In, uh, I, I teach... Uh, Communication at Paradise Valley Community College, I'll be starting my 18th year um, in a couple of weeks. Uh, just part-time, by the way, for those of you that are wondering how I do that with a church. But um, the first day in every class that I teach, I want to get people talking to each other and talking to me and feeling comfortable. And we do that through an affinity exercise. You all maybe know it as an icebreaker. So I'll put up on the board these questions and then I'll go around and as I'm recording who's in the class, I'm, they're answering these questions and I'm learning about them and, they're, and uh, the other classmates are learning about them too. So they have to answer what's their name, that's for me, and then they have to spell it. So that's kind of for me. So it gets me used to what their name is and how to spell it and all that. And then I want to know where they're born. This is all storytelling, but it's, we're seeking uh, connections and affinity. Where were you born? What high school did you graduate from? Because then, right then, boy, people start picking things out, right there. Uh, where do you work, if you're working some right now? Um, the reason I ask that is because I'm looking for discounts. So, um, I'll, The next question is, what's your hobby, if it's appropriate to share it? Because we're dealing with college students here. So, um, And then I ask them, what is their favorite movie? What's their favorite TV series, however that's delivered to them, whether it's through Netflix or Hulu or Amazon or whatever, or just regular cable, okay? What is it? Um, I'm interested in all that pop culture stuff anyway, and I find some of the best movies and TV shows to watch by getting recommendations from them. But it also, again, it connects people, and you should just see how the barriers just come right down when somebody will say, oh, I really liked uh, um, Mad Men, and somebody will go, oh, yeah, that's my favorite too. And instantly you have connection, you know. I'll ask them what their favorite fast food is. That throws a lot of curves at people. That's not a question you normally ask people. It does throw some curves. And, and, and I like to ask that because you always have the two or three in there who are like, I don't eat fast food, you know. And then we can make fun of them. And then, um, and then I ask them what's their favorite kind of music. And I, I'm always trying to put together a band. The music Uh, It helps me to discover who the musicians are in the class, and then I try to put together, you know, just for fun, say, oh, we need a percussionist and vocal and all that. So, But it gets everybody connected, and that's affinity, okay? And and it's a great way to kind of break the ice, melt some barriers down, uh, but as I said, there are some problems with affinity that we'll we'll eventually get to. Uh, Right out of the gate, um, I'll talk about uh, the research that I did, my thesis for my masters in communication theory, my area of emphasis was on rhetorical criticism and so my thesis project was to research, how many of you remember the uh, Baptist Foundation of Arizona Fraud? I bet you do, you're an attorney. Okay, remember, remember that? Okay, so God saved me in a southern, an Arizona Southern Baptist Church and so I was familiar with the BFA. I was also um, uh, on the board of trustees and then chairman of the board at Grand Canyon University while they were still a part of the Arizona Southern Baptist Convention. So I had some great knowledge of the Baptist Foundation of Arizona in terms of familiarity. Uh, and, and what I decided to do my thesis on was uh, what were the affinity seeking strategies that they used in order to defraud people out of $640 million which at the time was the largest affinity uh, fraud in the history of the United States. It's been far eclipsed since then, but it was, uh, it was pretty much discovered in 2001. Uh, Terry Sterling was the um, journalist from the New Times that kind of blew the lid off of everything. Uh, it was helped with the testimony of three different CPAs who worked for the BFA who finally came out and said, hey, there's something really wrong going on over here. But that, that was my research, and I got started in it because uh, there are a couple of scholars named Bell and Daly, who actually developed an affinity seeking strategy template and they came up with, and this is widely used now in communication and psychology research, the 25 most common afi- affinity seeking strategies that people will use, either nefariously or for good. And I'll give you six examples, so this is the a- kind of the academic part, but some of you Uh, will be interested in this. Others of you take a little nap, and we'll be back with you in a minute. But uh, uh, affinity-seeking, let me give you the definition of that, is the process by which individuals strategize to get other people, or the target, to like and feel positive toward them. The process by which individuals strategize to get other people, the target, to like and feel positive toward them. So again, this can be used for building relationships or for manipulation of the target. So here are some examples. The strategy of altruism. The affinity seeker strives to be of assistance to the target in whatever he or she is doing. It's that helpful person who's always there. In, in the church, we call that the servant-hearted person. Okay. So an example of that would be the affinity seeker is generally available to run errands for the target. That's not a bad thing, but if it's, you, if it's done in order to take advantage or manipulate somebody. The, the, you know those Discovery Channel murder shows, you ever watch those things? Um, there was one I remember in particular where there was an older guy living in a house and next door there was a young single woman who began to realize that this guy was loaded and so she used this affinity-seeking strategy in order to work her way into his life, eventually murdered him and stole his money. Now, she got caught, that's why we, she was on the show, okay? But that's, that's how you can use this stuff nefariously, okay? Uh, but Christians are also called to be servants, right? So, there's both sides of this. Here's another strategy. Uh, assume equality. The affinity-seeker strikes a posture of social equality with a target. No matter who they are, you ever meet somebody who's a CEO or a, a, an all-star athlete or whatever, and they just seem like they're just one of the one, another person just another person and they treat you equally even though you're not quite on their level okay so here's an example. the affinity seeker avoids one upping the other person or snobbish behavior um, and can this again can manipulate somebody or can put genuinely put somebody at ease. I', I told the story before I was on a flight from Orange County to Reno one time, and I ended up sitting next to Bruce Dern, who's one of my favorite actors. And uh, it, it was amazing, I just, I, it was, talking to him, I was like, oh, you know, and he was just like a regular guy, and it put me at ease, and it was really nice, you know. Um, here's another one, elicit others' disclosures. If any of you have read Dale Carnegie's book, uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People, I mean, half the book is about this. This is how you can win friends and influence people. The affinity seeker encourages the target to talk by reinforcing the target's conversational c- contributions. So an example of that would be the affinity seeker queries the target about the target's opinions regarding significant issues. And again, this can assist in putting somebody's guard down, uh, making them feel vulnerab- making them vulnerable, not feel vulnerable, m- but giving them the, the idea that they want to be vulnerable, or it provides a forum for inclusion, which people generally appreciate. You start to include people that way. Next one, openness. The affinity seeker discloses personal information to the target. This is also known as, uh, in the communication discipline, as self-disclosure, you know. You walk over and you go, hey man, you know, I got arrested once. (laughs) You're like, "Uh, TMI, okay, but it's, you're you're disclosing information to somebody that you wouldn't normally disclose in the normal course of of a conversation. Now you're getting into personal stuff. Uh, Part of the reason people do this is for something called the dyadic effect, where, I don't know if you ever know, somebody discloses something to you that's really personal and maybe dark and juicy, and you're like, well, I'll tell you about me then, you know? And then it opens you up. It's kind of a strategy. It's also used in gossip. I don't know if you've ever run into that. Uh, Somebody walk over, hey, Will, uh, you know, Chad, blah, 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 and then that Will's like, well, yeah, well, Chad, blah, 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 and that's kind of this dyadic effect, okay? So... It's it's a way to open people up. So an example is the affinity seeker discloses an insecurity, a fear, or some dark personal history uh, to the target. And self-disclosure is very risky, but it's needed. Self-disclosure is actually needed for genuinely deep, trusted, and intimate relationships. It, it, married people can't be married and sustain their marriage if there's no self-disclosure in it. And If you have a best friend and you don't know anything about them, they're really not your best friend. You're going to be engaged in self-disclosure with somebody at at some point. But those self-disclosures can be used to harm other people as well. Uh, The last two are actually the two um, uh, strategies that were primarily used by the BFA, similarity. The affinity seeker seeks to convince the target that the two of them share many tastes, preferences, and attitudes, or their faith or their religion, or their particular doctrine in Christianity even. You know, there's an affinity, it's, with Reformed theology, there's an affinity there, and, and uh, it's interesting to watch that play out. So an example, the affinity seeker often points out things to the target that the two have in common, like hockey. Anybody like hockey in here? There you go. Okay, so right now I've got a conne- so, and that's one of the things in Com 100. If I if I find out there's somebody there in there that likes hockey, there's an instant connection that I have with one of the students as well, because it's kind of an odd thing in Arizona to like, so especially with the, that we really don't even have a team. So anyway, um, that was a shot in case you were wondering. Uh, C.S. Lewis argues that the esen- the essence of friendship. C.S. Lewis argues this about friendship, the essence of friendship. Uh, is this idea of similarity. He, he says that um, the essence of friendship is when two people are standing side by side, they're looking at the same thing, and, and they have a passion for it, and they love it, and they enjoy it, and then they suddenly kind of turn sideways towards each other, and they, and they say, oh, really, you two? And boom, there's a connection there. Okay, so that's the similarity, okay? Uh, And then trustworthiness, the last one. The affinity seeker presents himself or herself to the target as an honest and reliable person. Example of that would be the affinity seeker consistently demonstrates the ability to fulfill commitments or have a track record, okay? Um, Obviously, something that's needed by financial advisors. Uh, Bernie Madoff uh, had this very trustworthy veneer to the tune of 50 billion, okay? So you look at that and then you kind of talk about, all right, uh, Joseph DeVito, no relation to Danny. Joseph is the communication scholar. Um, He says there are three types of, generally three types of friendships that we engage in. Uh, The most popular, the most common one, the the one that most of us really want is the friendship uh, known as reciprocity or the friendship of, of equality. Um, it's kind of that, it's that idea of social exchange theory. I'm going to put something in and expect to get something out. You're going to put something in and expect to get uh, something out. So you're building something by both uh, putting something in. Uh, and, And the problem, of course, with the friendship of reciprocity is when somebody starts to let you down, right? And you begin to think that they're not putting in suddenly, they're not putting in as much as you've been putting in. And you start to get miffed about that. That's the, that's the challenge that we have uh, there. Then there's the, uh, the friendship of imbalance. That's one where you enter into a friendship knowing that you're going to serve that person more than they're going to be able to serve you. We have um, a lady who attends our church and has been for quite some time who had a stroke when she was 54 years old. And she can't get around. She can't walk. And uh, some of you maybe have seen her. Her name is Pamela Cavella. And, and, but she's got friends who take care of her and put way more into this relationship than they necessarily get out of it from her, but they're willing to do that. It's known as a friendship of, of imbalance or inequality. And then there's the friendship of association. You're friends with somebody because you're part of the same group. Th- this happens certainly with um, you know, AA or 12-step or places like that. I was just in a con- at a, at a uh, leadership uh, conference last week in Southern California. And uh, they made us go into these breakout groups of eight people, and you had the same eight people all week long. And so now we're friends. And what I'm interested in, because I study this, that what I'm interested in is how long will we keep texting and emailing each other? after Now, now that we're not together every single day, how, how long is that really going to last? Because it was, we were friends, and we really enjoyed each other, but it was a friendship based on association, that we were all at that conference together. Now, go back to the friendship of reciprocity. I think this is kind of interesting. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, Paul's writing to the church at Philippi and he says this, he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Are you familiar with that verse? It's a really important verse about humility. Paul's trying to teach the importance of humility, which... This may surprise some of you, in their culture, was um, uh, anathema. Uh, To teach humility, what Paul was doing was shocking and disruptive to teach about humility. It was a culture very much like ours. Uh, If you show humility or humble, you're considered weak by most people in our culture. And it was the same thing there. You never wanted to be gentle or humble in first century Mediterranean culture because you would be viewed as weak. You you needed to be strong, you needed to be proud, you needed to be arrogant, you needed to have, you know, all of that stuff. So that's radical. But then the next verse is really interesting. And and I never really understood, I think Paul was trying to do with that verse until I started understanding friendships of reciprocity, which are generally based in affinity, Um, is is he says, um, look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others, right? So here's what he's saying. He's saying if you want to take that through a 21st century lens of reciprocity and social exchange where I'm going to get into a friendship with you and we're going to exchange us investing into this friendship. Uh, What most people do in friendships is when when, when the hard times come, when there's a crisis, when something challenging starts to happen, What we naturally do in our fallenness is we begin to only look out for our own interests and not the interests of our friend, even though it's a friendship of reciprocity and balance and and we're supposed to serve others. We, We tend to close in and think only of our interests first. And Paul's saying, look, the way friendships are supposed to work is that you're going to look out for other people's... It's okay to look out for your interests, but you're also going to look out for other people's interests, even if that means it's going to cost you a little bit. Affinity generally does not do that. You're just looking for connection to feel good and to not be inconvenienced and to not be made uncomfortable. That's one of the challenges with it. So, So a couple of potential downsides of affinity... As we've discovered and as we've looked at the research on affinity, here's two. Number one, if you get into a friendship that's based on affinity, one of the challenges is when you go deeper in the relationship and you start to find out that you don't have other things in common, that disrupts the relationship. And especially in our culture today, we tend to leave a relationship like that. In other words, we begin to think that we have to agree on everything and like all of the same things or the friendship's not sustainable. And suddenly there's no give or take, there's no no ability to be um, drawn out of your comfort zone, to maybe learn something new, to understand a different perspective, or even to be disrupted. And and disruption, I would argue, is, is not a bad thing, necessarily. It can be a very good thing because it can present a reality in your life that you have never wanted to consider or that you're in denial about. The gospel is very disruptive, by the way. I don't know if you've noticed that trying to share the gospel with somebody who has no clue what that means, it's disruptive to their reality and their worldview, okay? So that's one of the downsides. And then the other side is if we agree on everything, there begins to be with some people an expectation that you're going to start doing way more for me than you ever thought you were going to have to in this relationship in the first place. Such as, hey, I'm putting together a partnership and I could really use 10 grand to help finish this thing off. And and you use that affinity as leverage in order to be able to do that, and and that can become that's why you say don't invest with your friends, okay? So have a professional relationship like with your financial uh, advisor. Um, and and one of the challenges with affinity is this thing called, and I don't have a slide for it. I'm sorry, I added this later, um, but it's something that I just I run into all the time and is very very challenging. It's called the false consensus effect the false consensus effect. The false consensus, and research has shown that all of us do this, especially those of you who swear you don't. You do this, okay? Everybody, every human being, overestimates the degree to which other people agree with your opinions, values, attitudes, beliefs, preferences, likes, and dislikes. We overestimate the degree to which... Uh, uh, to which everybody else sees the world the way we do, and we're shocked when they don't. And it bothers us, it makes us uncomfortable, and it's disruptive, and we're you re- genu- it, it, it Really, it's like... Um, uh, 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 you, you share with somebody a movie that you just love, and they're kind of like, after the movie, no. And you're just devastated. I mean, I know it's a small thing, it's a movie, but... People get, or you, oh, I love, this, I love this group or this music or whatever, and you share it with somebody and, and you think it's going to go really well and then it doesn't, okay? Uh, when Jackie and I started dating, she had never seen Godfather 1 or 2, 3 hadn't come out yet, and, and that was a big test for our relationship. You know, so we went to church one day, North Phoenix Baptist Church, and then and then we rented on old VHS tape. Remember those things? Okay, some of you. Uh, we rented one and two, and it was, it was seven hours of The Godfather. And, and after Jackie was, uh, was done with it, she said, yeah, it's okay. And I said, all right, we can keep dating. So, um, but think about our politi- current political climate, you know, and false consensus effect. How could you possibly see things that way? And then you never talk to the person again. <laughs> You know, Um, and then what what we call the five loves begin to play into this too. Now, give me give me some slack on this, okay? It'll take a second to go through this, but I think it'll be uh, in the end it'll be helpful. There are many different ways in which we love one another, and and I know you're thinking, well, we're talking about friendships. I'm not talking about love. I'm talking about liking somebody. Well, if you look in Scripture, you realize that Jesus never said, you know, make sure you like one another. He's always using the word love and various forms of the word love, okay? And so even in friendships, it's really defined as love, okay? So the first one, this is more romantic. So I'm going to give it to you, but remember, this is if you're in a romantic relationship. It's eros. So this is love that is rooted in beauty and sensuality. So it's romantic love, not necessarily friendship love. Now, again, here you go. In our culture, one of the things we've done with Eros is, is we've, we've decided uh, in our culture that what we want is we want that Eros love without any of the responsibility and the accountability so that we can be friends with benefits, right? And that's just kind of a normal thing now in, in our culture. And we have, we have sullied, if you want to use that word, we've corrupted pure, beautiful Eros love, which is actually a very beautiful thing, in the right Context, okay? Um, and, but, but remember this, this love is rooted in the worthiness of the other person. Just remember that, okay? You, you, lo- you, you have a, a, a strong physical, sensual attraction to uh, this person. Here's the second one, ludos or ludus love. This is love that's rooted in how exciting and entertaining it is to be with that other person. Okay, so how many of you ever saw *Along Came Polly*? So that movie, uh, that she was uh, Jennifer Aniston's character was all about ludus love. She wanted entertainment, excitement. That's really what it, her friendships had. You had to be—it had to be exciting. She had to be on the edge all the time. Okay, um, I can be on the edge just hanging out with somebody and talking. Okay, like with Will, you know, we talk and and it's fun and and that's exciting and and all that uh, for me. But again. Um, And this is probably the strongest one that is really rooted in in affinity. You know, you find somebody else who likes the same things as you and and that's where the connection is made, okay? But again, this ludos is rooted in the worthiness of the other for you to have feelings of affection toward them. Then there's storge. Storge love is slow, peaceful, and traditional or secure love. Uh, Early in a friendship, there isn't a lot of this. There's a foundation for it, but what happens is over time, you will develop it, okay? So there's, uh, uh, um, So I don't mean to embarrass you, Chad, but Chad and I, Chad was one of the first friends I made when I came here to this church. He's been at this church longer than I have, and we started almost immediately meeting for coffee a couple times a month. We have some affinities, and we like talking, but the, the, like the godfather, Chad's, Chad works; he has a job and all that. But his real passion is screenwriting. So, and I love movies. So, um, I just wish he'd produce one, and then we could pay off this property. Anyway, um, <laughs> uh, but but over time, what's happened with Chad and I is this Storge love has grown because we can really we, we feel more and more secure with each other over time, and it develops. So, it's the idea of grace and truth over time. You know. Um, and that's important, but again, it's kind of rooted in the worthiness of the other. You know, you do this because it's good for you. Uh, then there's pragma. Pragma. What? 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 Uh, what? What English word do you think we get from pragmatic? So pragma love is is you're you're friends with somebody or you're in a relationship with somebody because it's practical and it's utilitarian. It just works. You know, you're friends because of a partnership or something. Um, but again, it's there's that worthiness of well, there's a benefit I'm getting because it just feels right. You know, it's kind of like one plus one equals three when I'm in a relationship like that with somebody. Okay, and that's good. Then there's agape. So agape is, of course, in the church, everybody, oh, agape love, agape. And we name ministries agape and all that stuff. And we like the little thing over the E and all that stuff, okay? <laughs> and, but agape love is selfless unconditional, compassionate. Now, what's the difference between agape and the other four I've given you? There is nothing worthy about the person that you are loving. Nothing. In fact, when Jesus says, love your enemies in Matthew chapter 5, he's saying, agape your enemies. In a sense, Jesus is saying, I know there's no reason for you to love them. There's no worthiness in your enemies to love them. Love them anyway because you weren't necessarily worthy of my love going to the cross and yet I did it for you. By the way, those of you who are married, in Ephesians 5.25 when Paul says husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, he didn't use the word eros, he used the word agape. You you love your wives unconditionally, selflessly, compassionately, okay? And there's... There's no necessarily worthiness there. Okay? You're not loving because they're drawing it out of you. You're loving them because you've been given that love from God. And here's the deal about agape love: those other loves are not sustainable for a relationship without the agape. You can have all the ludos, you can have the pragma, you can have the storge. But if you don't have the agape, eventually that relationship, even based on those three loves, will disintegrate in some way. Because we are fallen, we're filled with corruption, sin, and there has to, there has to be points when we say, we're going to stay in this relationship and I love you, even though it's not very beneficial to me right now to be able to do that. So affinity aside, this is a key component to uh, friendships. By the way, if you're married... Eros is really important too. It's really interesting to study this stuff uh, in this way. If you're married and you have um, the other three and you don't have Eros, you're in trouble. When When I do counseling for married couples, eventually, when they're having problems, eventually I will get to that point where I'll say, how often are you making love? And it's and it's interesting to see the number of couples, and I'm not talking about couples in their mid-100s. I'm talking about young, vibrant couples who, who will, I'll ask them that question and they'll, they'll look away, they'll look down and there's like shame there. And then one of them will finally volunteer, well, maybe every six months. And then immediately they'll go, but all these other problems, if we could just solve all these other problems, then we'd get back to this. And my point is, you know, it's going to make it a lot easier to solve all these other problems if you get back to this. This is a really important component of of biblical married love. Read 1 Corinthians 7. It it doesn't fix all those other problems, but it begins to melt them. It makes them not seem so overwhelming and so problematic. And by the way, this is biblical, but what's interesting is all the uh, psychology research has shown this as well. So the way these five loves fit, fit, fit together in, in romantic relationships is important. You can't have a romantic relationship without the agape love either. But also within friendships, the way the four fit together, it's really important as well. Now some of you are like, okay, wait a minute, There's, I know there's two others. There's filial love, which is brotherly love. Okay, that's We're talking about family there. It's a kind of a different category, but I feel like I'm brothers with this guy I I understand that but that's really more just some Ludos and storge that's manifesting itself And then there's another one called mania. Some of you maybe have experienced this This is the person who can't decide if they love you or hate you and you have no idea what you're walking into each time It's the most destructive kind so we won't talk about that uh, today so Um, Those are the kind of the loves which help frame this conversation as well. And then um, uh, churches have kind of fed into this as well. Churches like to put together what's called affinity groups. Have you ever noticed that? So we, we have a lot. We don't. But churches will have a lot of announcements on Sunday morning about this group that's going to get together and this group that's going to... And there's always centered around some common interest, okay? And a lot of people think that's the purpose of the church is to help me find people with other common interests. Eh, Jesus, whatever. But help, find, help me find people who like to shoot guns, okay? So we can have a Christian shooting club, okay? And we have this... We have, you know, the Christian shooters or whatever. So we have... We have... We do. I mean, you know. We, running, you know. Well, the first time, As soon as I got here, people found out I was a runner. And there was this incredible pressure for me to start announcing that we're going to have a running club at, at Redemption Arcadia. And it was like, look, can't we just sort of find each other on Facebook or something and get together that way? I mean, we're going to talk about Jesus on Sunday morning, okay? Um, but there's men's group, women's group. And th- th- he, by the way, these are not necessarily bad, but they can be elevated uh, on, in an unhealthy way. But there's men's, women's, singles, young marrieds. Mops, you know, mothers of preschoolers. Um, uh, at my last church, we had a group called the Primetimers. Who do you think they were? Ha- What'd you say? Yeah, that, yeah. That they considered using the term geezers, and then thought Prime would be more marketable. <laughs> and I taught them every Thursday a Bible study. Every Thursday morning, I got to teach them. Yeah, and I, uh, yeah, and I repeated myself a lot. You're right. So. Shooting, running, softball. You know. One of Tom Schrader's big jokes is um, it's the person who walks up who's, who's uh, blind and left-handed and he likes to bowl. So he's like, could we get together a church, blind, left-handed bowling league together and you know, kind of get that thing going? By the way, has anybody ever played in a, in a church or Christian sports league, basketball or softball? I mean, I have, and it seems like there's more fights in those than in the city leagues. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. That's one of the problems with that uh, as well. Um, but affinity. It, here's the, here's one of the challenges. Is there room for disagreement? This is one of my favorite stories. So I'll just read it to you. Uh, once I saw this guy on a bridge about to jump, and I said, "Don't do it." And he said, "Well, nobody loves me." And I said, "Well, God loves you. Do, do you believe in God?" And he said, "Yes." And I said, "Well, are you a Christian or a Jew?" And he said, "I'm a Christian." And I said, "Me too." He said, and I said, "Are you a Protestant or Catholic?" And he said, "Well, I'm Protestant." And I said, "Me too." What, what denomination are you?" And he said, Baptist. I said, me too! Are are you Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? He said, Northern Baptist. I said, well, me too! Are you Northern Conservative Baptist or Northern Liberal Baptist? He said, Northern Liberal Baptist. I said, I'm sorry, Northern Conservative Baptist. And I said, me too! I said, are you Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region or Northern Conservative Baptist Eastern Region? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region. And I said, me too! And I said, Northern Conservative Baptist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1879 or Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912? And he said, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. And I said, die, heretic, and I pushed him off the bridge. (laughs) Now that's funny, but think about how real it is. By the way, especially with the way things are going on social media. I mean, how careful do you have to be anymore about anything that you put out there? You know, there's th- th- these troll. Anyway. So, here's what Tony Ranke says in, in his latest book. He says, friction is the path to genuine authenticity. Friction is the path to genuine authenticity If there's no friction or disagreement, there is no depth to the relationship. And by the way, if you're wondering who Tony Ranke is, he works for John Piper. So that for some of you, you're like, oh, well, then I'm going to buy his book. Okay, so, I mean, there's some gravitas there, okay? Um, This is true all the time, but one place where he really gets after it, um, it's kind of a long quote, but I want to read it to you. Because it it just really, it spoke to me. Hang in there with it. We're going to get Will up here in just a minute. And he's writing about this. In this area of the book, he's really writing about it in terms of digital communication and social media, and listen to what he says. Uh, It's becoming easier and easier to separate ourselves from people who don't think like us and gravitate toward people who do. This is one reason why I love to write online. Reading and writing in, in the instantaneous digital world of online social networks is a means to profound Christian fellowship. We can disclose things very near to our hearts and our core fears and convictions, and some of our closest friendships can be forged and maintained on our phones with people around the world. But as mentioned in the last chapter, there can be a serious downside to online-only fellowship. My research on this point eventually brought brought me to northern England, to Alistair Roberts, a studious 36-year-old theologian and eloquent writer laboring in the fields of biblical theology and contemporary ethical issues, including our relationship to developing technologies. Roberts is also a longtime blogger who wisely warns of one toxic danger that threatens our online communities. The internet can enable us to form connections with people with whom we have extremely particular things in common, making possible highly stimulating, enriching, and deepening interactions. I wouldn't be where I am or who I am today were it not for online interactions, sustaining and helping me to develop a perspective that bears little relation to to my immediate context over the years. This said, while I have undoubtedly gained an immense amount from these, I have frequently found them to be a retreat from the challenge of actual relationships with Christian neighbors with whom I differ. A temptation amplified for me by virtue of the fact that I can naturally be an extreme introvert prone to reclusiveness. I am personally finding more and more people who describe themselves in our digital world as introverts prone to reclusiveness. I think Part of what, happened, what is happening in the digital world is that it's driving us toward that. When you know that there is a place where everyone largely agrees with you and values you, you can develop a reluctance to go to a church where you are not so valued, understood, or appreciated. The narcissism that can be uh, characteristic of romantic ideals, romantic ideals that can actually drive us away from our real partners into escapist and emotionally comforting reveries, can also cause us to replace the concrete relationships of our given context with idealized communities in which we can forego the struggles associated with the transformation of actual communities and the need to adapt to and be vulnerable with others." How many of you have ever seen that chart that some psychologists will do? They'll draw a line like this and they'll say, "Uh, here's the uh, ideal, and we're all idealists, right? We all have an ideal of what we want, okay? and then here's reality, right, because nothing's ideal, and we have to deal with reality. And then they say, in here, what we do with this gap in between is where all of our dysfunction gets manifested. Are we capable of having ideals, but dealing with reality? And what Ranke's arguing is that in the digital world, we are being trained to not have to deal with any of that. And then you get out into the real world, and it's really hard, right? And, and, and it's easier to find affinity. And he writes this, we, settle, uh, we easily settle into digital villages of friends who think just like us and escape from people who are unlike us. Our phones buffer us from diversity. And then he writes, Communities that fail to embrace The benefits of disagreements and fail to work through tensions and differences tend to become homogenous and unhealthy because they tend to have exaggerated blind spots and unaddressed weaknesses. And then he he closes the section by saying this. This, I think, is really interesting. Maybe this is a key function of church attendance in the digital age. We must withdraw from our online worlds to gather as a body in our local churches. We gather to be seen... To feel awkward and perhaps to feel a little unheard and underappreciated, all on purpose. In obedience to the biblical command not to forsake meeting together, we each come as one small piece, one individual member, one body part, in order to find purpose, life, and value in union with the rest of the living body of Christ. Some pretty interesting stuff there, and I think... Um, very, very helpful. So a couple things, and then I'll get a little bit to Scripture and we'll bring up Will. Um, Just think about affinity like this. I'm thinking about starting an affinity group for people who like to be on their phones. (laughs) See, some of you got that. So we're all going to get together every Tuesday night in here so that we can be on our phones together. (laughs) That'll be fun. But we're, we're addicted to our phones, aren't we? Those of you here a couple Sundays ago, I quoted the the statistic that when we're awake, we check our, on average, we check our phones every four minutes. And most of you are like, there's no way. You should start monitoring it. You'll be surprised how easy it is to do this. Okay? Uh, Here's the second thing. I I was part of a, years ago, I was part of a grassroots small group that um, there was a a place called Sub Factory over at 7th Avenue in Camelback. It's a, it was a wonderful um, sub place. They're gone. The guy moved out to um, Gilbert. He's just down the street from our Gilbert congregation, so I go out there and see him every now and then. But uh, it, there were six of us that for seven years, we met there every Friday at 1130 for lunch and, and got together and did the whole iron sharpening iron and all that stuff. And, and it was really good. Um, but could you imagine, it started because we all liked the sandwiches there. But could you imagine if that's all we ever talked about was our love for the sandwiches? This would have lasted three weeks, and we would have moved on. See, eventually, you have to start going deeper, okay? So ultimately, worldly affinity is fine as long as it's not abused. It can be a characteristic of great friendships, but it can also be abused, and we cannot even realize we're we're abusing it. That's one of the really hard parts of it. Uh, And ultimately, the greatest affinity that we should have should be with Jesus, Um, I would argue that, you know, you have um, you, and you're a target, and there's me, and I'm a target, and we're kind of going after each other, but what really brings us together is this, in the church. I, I... I'm not going to read it. I don't have time. But I want you to think about 1 Corinthians chapter 12 in that way. Where Paul talks about how we are all different, diverse members of one body. And Christ is the head. We're different. Yet we are unified in Jesus. I am obsessed right now with 1 Corinthians 12 and have been for about the last year. Just be thankful that I'm not working it into every single Acts sermon. We have enough ground to cover already in Acts. But I'm just obsessed with this because I, I see what Paul is doing there and what Jesus has already done for us there. That we really are different, but we can be unified in Christ. Think about First think about Samuel 18. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul never set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. David and Jonathan had absolutely no reason to be friends. What united them? Their love for God. They were as different and had different agendas and different uh, um, aspirations as anybody, any two people could be and yet they were knit together. So there's another one. Um, I think this is kind of interesting. Look at Genesis 2.18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Um, Did you know that that verse is not about marriage? It's about relationship and community. You understand that there are single people who are doing just fine. What we need is relationship and community. We don't necessarily need marriage. Now, I do because it's Jackie. That's that's fine for me, but it's not fine for everybody. That verse is about relationship and community, not about marriage. Now. Genesis 2, 24 and 25. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. That is about marriage. So Genesis 2 is about relationship, macro, specific example, marriage. Biblical marriage. And it's a big one. And we get a lot of marriage doctrine from Genesis 2. But it's not only about marriage. How about Ecclesiastes um, chapter 4? Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors was power, and there was no one to comfort them. You hear the no one to comfort them, no one to comfort them. And I thought the, uh, and I thought the dead who were already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. And then verses 9 through 12, very familiar. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone if he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together and keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two with, will withstand him. A threefold cord is not easily broken. One more, I'm sorry. This is really interesting and really good, I think, and really helpful. First uh, Peter 4. "...to this they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is, who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded." For the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And then the key verse as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength of God's supply, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Uh, of verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. John Townsend, PhD, who's written many books, says this: People, people are the delivery device of God's grace. And we do that through these friendships. So we need to be careful of how we're using affinity. So the goal is genuine community and relationships that are bigger than we are, meaning we must set aside some preferences and opinion and agree in the Lord as a foreshadowing of the life that we're going to have in the New Jerusalem. So uh, come on up here, Um, Will. This is Will Munsell. How many of you know Will? Anybody know Will? He's been around here. Danny knows. Danny's married to him, so Danny knows him. So, uh, Will, tell us a a little bit about who you are and... um, uh, your family and how long you've been here and all that stuff. What do you do for a yeah. living, too? Well, I'm an oh, attorney, I'm sorry.
1: unfortunately. There we go. Um, I work for the county attorney's office, so in my day job, I do um, government relations and prosecution. So I see maybe uh, some of the downfalls that happen when community is broken. Um, I've been attending Redemption Church for a little over three years um, with my wife, Dani. Uh, we have... A daughter who's one and another one on the way due in September, so I will have two little girls running around. Um, I've been talking to Frank about this topic for uh, for a little while and he's got some questions for me.
0: So what's wrong with the way we experience community? <laughs> let me he's start, writing a let book about community for crying out um, loud, so he's an expert, alright? I'm,
1: I'm writing a book uh, tentatively called Community in America. Um, what got me interested in this topic is I, I've been a teacher, I've been a, a writer, um, a political science professor. Um, what I started to notice a little over a year ago was there was this word that was starting to dominate everything we talk about in America. The word's community. Think about all the different ways um, that we use the word community. Think about. Uh, gated communities, campus communities, apartment communities, CrossFit communities, um, TV show watching communities, creative community, the black community, the white community, the evangelical community, you heard a lot about that in the 2016 presidential election. Um, If this word, if this concept of community, if we actually had it, then why do, why are there statistics like this? Um, There was a 2006 study from researchers researchers at Duke University and the U of A, um, the number of people most Americans felt that they could confide in, they could talk about really personal matters uh, with, fell between 1985 and 2004 from three, three people in your life that you can talk about personal matters to two. So in 20 years, uh, a third less genuine community. Um, The rate of people who had nobody Nobody in their life, nobody in the world they can talk to about things that really matter, doubled in those 20 years to a quarter of the American population.: one So in one every in four four okay. uh, Americans, and, and the, the, that's a large number. say they've got nobody in their life they can even talk to about things that matter. Um, my argument, my thesis, is that we're experiencing something uh, that's kind of unprecedented in human life. Um, at least a 50-year project, probably more, um, that I can only call the the decline of community in America. Um, In the 1830s, uh, Alexis de Tocqueville came to the United States and wrote about what he called the equality of condition. He called it a providential fact. No matter what everyone tries to do, this is happening. It's the central fact of the time. Um, I would argue that the decline of community is the central fact of our time. It's the providential fact, um, and it has profound consequences—not just for our politics. We'll talk about that um, for our economy, uh, but mostly for for the way we live our lives and the way we find joy and fulfillment in our
0: lives. So, what what? How would you define community, and what are some of the counterfeit communities that we're sort of fooling ourselves with?
1: So, the thing I started to notice as I uh, as I research this concept, research this word, is that nobody knows what we mean by community. Um, I wanted to start with, when we talk about this word, we use it constantly, it's everywhere. Um, You've probably used it to to define some group you're in. I've certainly used it. I find myself using it when I don't even mean it. Um, (laughs) this, this, This word that we constantly use, we've gotta be able to define it. And I think our inability to do so, while we think we live in one, is one of the major reasons it continues to decline. Um, What I mean by community, uh, a community needs three essential ingredients and a direction. Um, It needs people that matter on an individual level, not just for their affinity, not just for their identity, um, not just for their personality traits, their quirks. All the things that we notice about people in the first five minutes, um, that's not what matters about uh, individual people. People matter to community for their own sakes, um, in a, in a deep and meaningful sense. Uh, and then place. Place matters. And this is one that, that our, uh, our American experience is, is profoundly disintegrating of. The importance of actual face-to-face experience with other people in a specific place. Not a global community, um, an actual physical local community. It shouldn't be a surprise to you that I think the best example of place mattering, the best example of a local community should be the local church. I think redemption is, is a great example of this. Um, but people and place that matter. In the last uh, few days, I've been taking the bus and then light rail into work. Um, it changes your perception of the place that you live in uh, when you're just in the place without the buffer between you and the world um, that a car often presents, that your house can present. Um, So place has to matter, and we have to know it in a way that's deeper than just just seeing it. Um, And then practice. People, place, and practice. Practice, you could define those as our habits, the things we do together. You can have a, a community that's people and place, but if, if you aren't doing things that shape the soul together, if you aren't engaged in things you, you do together for the betterment, not just of the community, but the people around you, um, then you're also missing something from, from the essential uh, definition of community. Um, so people, place, and practice. And then the, the secret ingredient that I think Christians and the church can understand better than almost anybody is purpose. There has to be a direction. It has to be aimed at something higher than simply the perpetuation of the community. Um, Because a lot of times, that's what what our communities are. Maybe there are people, maybe there's a place, maybe there are practices, but the whole goal is to keep the community afloat. Um, Without that purpose, without something you're aiming at that's higher than just the survival of the community, you're also missing something. But from a human perspective, uh, place from a human perspective. If we could just get people, place, and practice right, that would be a pretty good start um, in modern day. So, America.
0: so when you say practice shooting, isn't the, you want to go a little deeper than just shooting guns together? You do not that that's bad yeah. necessarily, but
1: you do. And and I think it's a natural human urge to find affinity. Um, Frank did a great job talking about the things that connect us together. The the C.S. Lewis, oh, you too, I thought I was the only one. Um, That's a great starting point, and that's what we can build authentic community from. Um, But if our practices are just, for example, um, when I was in college, I lived with a bunch of guys, like probably all of you um, did at some point, lived with people you're not married to, just roommates, friends. It's actually the most common uh, living arrangement for 18 to 34-year-olds in the United States uh, just ahead of with your parents. Um, so <laughs> th- these are statistics. This, yeah. is, this is real. Um, so we, we were people who knew each other as individuals. We lived in a place. We kind of cared for it together, um, sometimes not. But the, the practices we engaged in were just going to get our, our dinner together, um, watching the office together we weren't actually engaging in practices that shape the soul and point us outside of ourselves at something higher. Um, And so that's what I mean by practices. Um, There's been a lot of attention paid to practices in the church in the last few years, partly because of uh, Jamie Smith. James K.A. Smith wrote a a series of books, but the book is uh, You Are What You Love. And his argument is that um, we can really know what we love by what we do, what we practice every day, um, and we, uh, we are, in a sense, we're shaped by what we love and what we do repeatedly. Aristotle saw it uh, a long time before Christ. He said, we are what we repeatedly do. Excellence, then, is not an act, um, but a habit. A story from just from our lives, as Frank talks about phones and the, the way they're shaping us and forming us, we've got a one-year-old, and you should see the way that she wants our phones. And, and we try to not use them when she's around. We try really hard. Um, But still, watching us check our phones every four to seven minutes, if we're being generous to ourselves, has shaped her um, to want to grab that phone and play with it. Um, This is a metaphor that continues to have influence over our lives for the rest of our lives. It's, It's not just a thing that babies do as they're learning.
0: So what are some of the counterfeit communities where we think we're in community, but it's probably not getting at these things that you're talking about, these four things? Almost all
1: of them. Almost <laughs> every time we use the word community, what we're really talking about is a counterfeit that's missing one or more of the essential ingredients. Okay. Um, so an apartment community, how, how many of you have lived in an apartment complex? On all the signs, don't they call it a community, you have a community garden, you have a community room, is that an authentic community? No, because you, you don't know the people you're living with, you don't share much with them. You can, um, some people are better at this than others, but an apartment complex, almost never an actual community. Um, another counterfeit, and this one, this one hits home for a lot of people, marriage can be a counterfeit community. Your marriage with the person you're married to, even the family that you form, is not a community in and of itself. It's not enough. There has to be some sort of orientation outside of yourself, something more important than just the perpetuation um, of of that family. Uh, Your sports fandom, this is a really strong one in the United States. Uh, There's almost nothing in, in America that binds us together more than rooting for the teams that we love. And that's No CrossFit. Cr- CrossFit certainly <laughs> does too. Um, sweating together, probably the thing that, <laughs> that binds us together most. But there's there's nothing in the modern American experience like being with seventy thousand fans screaming for the same guys in the same colored costumes. And I say this as a as a former football and baseball coach. I played college baseball. I love sports, but the sports fandom is a counterfeit of of community. Yet for so many people it's kind of the best we have and what what I the point I want to make about these counterfeits is it's not they're not bad in and of them, themselves even our desire to be in them is just a sign of how badly we long for community um, but if we think that's a really that good point if we think that we're getting what we ultimately long for from them um, they fail and this is where, where Frank so, often says, false gods so, yeah, they're never false fail gods. to fail. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. And that's what we do with these counterfeits of community. We want it so badly, uh, but it never lives up to what we expect from it on Earth.
0: So, you, you know, I'm not, by the way, I'm not the, I, I didn't come up with false gods never fail to fail. That was Schrader's. If you'd read my Twitter profile, you'd know that in my profile, I say I have no original thoughts, so. <laughs> Um, I get it yeah. from my communities, but you so. say it a lot. Yeah, yeah. Um, how can broken people in a fallen world make good communities? Is there any hope short of heaven or the New Jerusalem?
1: Very carefully. Um, that's how we can we can build communities. Um, but but the point that I'm I'm making in my book is that it's essential if we want if these statistics are to be believed, which I I think our personal experiences probably back them up. Um, if if we want this thing called community to work, we're gonna have to choose it. Um, James Davison Hunter uh, wrote the book to change the world. Um, it was about sort of the experience of evangelical engagement, Christian engagement in politics. That's what it was about. Um, but in about a three-page section, he talked about community, and his his takeaway was community is no longer natural under the conditions of late modernity. And I use that essentially as the the thesis of my book. Community is no longer natural. We aren't born into them. We have no experience in how to make them. Um, They aren't just naturally presented for us. Now, there are those people with a natural gift for it. They'll always exist, the connectors, uh, the people that we all want to be around, and there are a lot of them in this church. But for the rest of us, the people who don't have it, as something that's sort of coded into our DNA. It's not natural and we, we don't, it's not easy to get into a natural community. Um, so my argument is we need to use this sort of unprecedented American freedom to choose. No one in the history of the world has more freedom to be and do and choose whatever you want than 21st century Americans. And that's in many ways good, but it's also, it can be, Uh, very destructive of community. So my my argument is if we want community, and I believe we need it, um, and not having it is causing us to suffer in a lot of ways, um, we're going to have to choose it. We're going to have to choose it over things like success, things like happiness, um, in our own sort of personal pleasure, individualistic way. Um, The cultural narratives are so strong um, for what we should chase, what we should want, that we've got to continually, over and over, like it's a habit, like it's uh, something that we need, we have to choose to build our local communities. That could mean maybe not moving. That could mean uh, paying more attention to local politics than national politics. It has so many consequences, um, but that's, that's the only way we can do it. Now, we have to do it carefully. We have to do it with prayer. Uh, we can't believe that we can build heaven on earth uh, no utopias, no golden ages. Uh, the old uh, line is no immunitizing the eschaton, no trying to bring the end of days here to us, but we have to do it. And the good news is there's an exam- there are examples in American history of people who did this pretty well. Um, John Winthrop was the first governor of Massachusetts Bay Colony, so one of the first people to settle the United States, 1620, he and his group of 50 uh, hardy Puritans are in the Arbella off the coast of Massachusetts Bay. And he gives him a speech. He says, the only way to avoid this shipwreck and provide for our posterity is to follow the counsel of Micah, to do justly, to love mercy, to walk hum- humbly with our God. For this end, we must be knit together in this work as one man. We must entertain each other in brotherly affection. We must be willing to abridge ourselves of our superfluities, the things that we don't need but want um, for the supply of others' necessities. Um, we must delight in each other, make each other's conditions our own, rejoice together, mourn together, labor and suffer together. Um, and then he, taught, he has an extended uh, discourse on the nature of the body of Christ. That's the American heritage too. Um, we talk a lot about live free or die. We talk about Lady Liberty, but there's also this history of choosing to give up things that we could individually have for the sake of community. Um, and I'm just arguing we should be a little more John Winthrop than John
0: Wayne. <laughs> That's really good. So um, I, I, I want to I get it, I want to ask this one: what, what does the decline in community mean for our politics? And I know you have a lot here, but I think people would be yeah. interested in that.
1: Um, this is the second sort of inciting incident that, that made me believe that I, I had to write this book. Um, I watched the 2016 presidential election and all the other ones that none of us paid attention to. Um, the decline in community has taught us that the thing that can save us, the thing that can save us, the thing that should shape our lives is who gets elected to sit in the White House. Um, our politics, in, in the American experience, politics was what happened on the street you lived on. It was the, the village square, the meeting place. That's, that's how we started. In fact, uh, the founders of the United States were, were so distrustful of central government, so distrustful of what happened in distant capitals, um, that they spent about 13 years living under a cons- uh, uh, Articles of Confederation that made it almost impossible for the central government to do anything. That's where we started. Um, our de- the decline of our local communities, um, because we have no opportunity to know our neighbors, to work together for common goals with people who are not like us, uh, to find fulfillment in our outlet for those really natural human political inclinations at a level where we can actually hope to affect some change, we begin to see Washington as our only hope. What happens at, in that distant capital Um, Mm. And that doesn't work one because there are over 300 million people in the United States and our ability to make significant change is very limited. I don't want to dissuade anyone who thinks they should run for office, especially national office because you should um, if you're called to that, but we can't actually make a difference there like the one that we could in our local communities. So I, I, I said it and it's a little cheap, but if you really wanna make America great again, start in your neighborhood. Um, and I think that's that's what we have to do. Uh, the, o- the other thing that this sort of decline of community does is it makes us hash out so much more of our political energy on the internet, on social media. Um, you've said it, people ended friendships and deep relationships over the events of a presidential election where no one was really all that happy on, on either side with who was running. It, it, it shouldn't have mattered that much if we had genuine local community. Um, it gets us out of our neighborhoods and it, it, it aims us at these arguments that can only really happen uh, at a national level or on the internet. And there's a whole lot more to say about what this does to our politics. But I hope we can start by saying there's something wrong with our national politics and maybe the decline of local community and local engagement has something to do with it.
0: it, it, it what you just said, it should not have mattered as much to us and it wouldn't have yeah. if we had better local engagement. Yeah, that, be, that's an amazing thing to think about.
1: Yeah, be, because we, we, in our local communities, if we were living in them the way that, that we could and should, that's where the decisions that really should affect us would happen. Um, So I've been talking about a a politics of of localism, a small politics that doesn't try to affect everything in our lives, that can say that Phoenix and Portland can exist in the same country without being mortally offended at the other's existence. Um, and, And we'd be a whole lot happier if maybe we could live in our local communities and have a little bit more... Uh, ability to shape the the choices that are made at the local level.
0: It's interesting that you picked Portland. I'd like to unpack that with you over coffee. But um, <laughs> uh, I want to just hang in there if you can. I want to ask him three more questions. One of them won't take that long. But um, are there any signs that trends are changing? That these trends are changing? Um, any good signs?
1: Yeah, there there is actually uh, the. F- what I consider to be sort of the first sprigs of real community that are shooting out from the rubble of what we've made over the last 50 years or so. Um, in our economic lives, uh, localism is rising, certainly in, in our purchasing decisions. We all want to shop local. We want to buy local. I've been calling it a sort of stylish localism. Um, it's cool uh, to be a localist for the first time in a really long time. It's, it's cooler to shop at the local store than it is at Walmart or Target or, or, you know, Amazon, although Amazon is probably going to be the only retailer in about 20 years. Um, <laughs> so, but I would say there's a new attention to placemaking um, in the value of our lived environments and what they do to shape our souls. Um, I think that's good. I, if, if you go into downtown Phoenix, you'll find that uh, there's been a lot of progress in the last 10 years on this front, and Phoenix is not alone. This is happening in cities especially all around the country. So there's some signs of hope. Uh, I would say another sign of hope is that we're so dissatisfied with our national politics that we might think that that we have to do something different. In fact, there are, uh, there are a lot of movements for uh, local communities, cities to start making more of their decisions, which as someone who comes from a gen, uh, generally conservative background, I say, good, it's about time you rediscovered federalism. This, this can be really good. Um, in the church, there's a new attention to habits, how they shape the soul. Um, you are what you love is, is a good example of that. So I think there's hope, um, but again, we've got to continue to make the choice for community over and over, even Against all the things our culture tells us we should
0: be chasing and choosing. So this idea of choosing community is a big deal. It's one of the biggest. And and so somebody here says, all right, I want to choose community. What what are some good ways to maybe start? I I tend to think that the table is a great place
1: to start. Um, in the so church, food. we use we use the table as as the metaphor for God's participation with us. Um, Jesus's body broken. We share the Lord's table. I think the table is a metaphor for how we, and and our church does a great job of this, of how we should live together. Um, tending the garden together uh, I, on a more practical level. Um, there should be more mixing of ages, both in the church and out. Um, I cited some stats about people you can confide in in loneliness earlier, um, but Senator Ben Sass just wrote a book, um, not at all about politics, and he said that the, the statistic for the number of people who have someone they can confide in who is A, not a, a member of their family, and B, in a different generation, it's under 10%. Oh, wow. We just don't, we just don't have anything in yeah. common with people who aren't in our age group anymore. Um, Racial diversity with genuine individuality. Attention to your street. Um, Get involved in a political party, as painful as it is. Um, Introduce yourself to strangers. Uh, Look people in the eyes. Um, In First Things, the most recent episode of the Catholic Journal, First Things, there's an article by a psychiatrist about the suicide epidemic. Um, That rate has gone way up in the last 20 years. And he finishes the article with with a story of someone who who jumped off the San, the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco, they recovered his body. Um, they found a suicide note back at his apartment, and it said, "If one person smiles at me on the way to the bridge, I won't jump." Wow.
0: So, it can be really little things. So smile, make eye smile. contact. Those little things really help. Can be really as simple help. as that. Yeah. yeah. Um, the, you mentioned the generational thing. I, yeah. uh, those of you that kind of are inside baseball kind of behind the scenes know that during that whole 2016 presidential run and then in the six month wake after it, my greatest frustration was how this, uh, this election seemed to demonstrate or, or reveal how differently generations value different things and how proprietary we are about valuing those things, and we're not interested in opening up and understanding other generations. And that goes both ways. My generation, I'm 58, my generation generally doesn't care what the millennials think. And we think very differently and have very different passions about things, but the millennials also don't care what our generation thinks. And so we've just quit talking to each other, and that's a problem. That is a really big problem. Uh, so the last question I would have is, if uh, it's an interesting topic, is there anything I can read? You are very well read, um, and and so what are some good places to start?
1: I've been trying to do my research. Uh, so I, I pulled together just a little list of books that I've consulted, uh, things, places to look if you're interested in this and you think this is the kind of project that I want to be part of. Um, From a Christian perspective, I think the best uh, exploration of this theme is probably Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Life Together. Um, It's a really thin little book, an excellent book on practical Christian fellowship within the church.
0: But it's deeply profound. That it's thin. Deeply profound. Reading, if any of you have (laughs) ever read Bonhoeffer, at least for me, you read one paragraph and then you have to go away and meditate for three days. Because seriously, I mean, this guy is unbelievable. So, anyway, go ahead.
1: Yeah, uh, Acts 2. Um, and I had some stuff to quote from Acts, too. That's another great place. Uh, Robert Nisbet's The Quest for Community. He wrote it in in about 1950. The threat at that point he was reacting to was these totalitarian governments arising all around the world, uh, communism especially. Um, He wrote a book called The Quest for Community. Um, And his argument was basically, in the absence of genuine local community, we turn, as we only can, to large, central, distant, bureaucratic forms of national and, at this point, international global community. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg calls Facebook's mission for the 21st century building global community. So we'll see in 20 years how that turned out. Um, Habits of the Heart uh, was a book that was published in the 1990s that basically looked at a bunch of American lives uh, and and, and basically determined that what made people happy, and this was a fascinating conclusion for much of secular researchers to come to, um, was that living like a Christian was the thing that could make you the happiest. Um, secular research, uh, they didn't phrase it like that exactly, but if you read the book, you'll know. Um, bowling alone was Robert Putnam's um, uh, he's a sociologist, exploration of sort of the disintegration of community. He wrote it, I think that was also in the 1990s. That's another great place to look. More recently, the, uh, the book Hillbilly Elegy is by J.D. Vance. It's been on the top of the bestseller list. Um, uh, and that essentially shows a picture of a community that's maybe 20 or 30 years ahead of all of ours down the road uh, to dysfunction. Um, There are a lot more. Uh, Yuval Levin, if you're really into political science, Yuval Levin's um, The Fractured Republic is the political argument. Um, So you could start anywhere.
0: And James Davidson Hunter's To Change the World is is a good one. It's a long read, but it's a very substantial good read. Yeah,
1: if you're really interested in Christian politics, Christian cultural engagement, uh, that's a great place to start too. So, and eventually, uh, hopefully, Community in America by me. So someday.
0: Well, uh, yeah, and I and I hope that happens. I know that um, you, you you're working hard on it, and you have some publishers looking at it, and that's very exciting. And I'm praying that that'll get, that'll happen for you. And uh, we appreciate you coming tonight. We appreciate you and Danny and your contributions to our uh, community. I know you guys serve here quite a bit, and it's been great to have you. And and thanks for taking the time to come up here and do this. Can, thank we, can we thank uh, Will for doing that? Yeah.
1: And it, if you have any stories uh, about this, or anecdotes, or facts, or just want to talk about it, uh, shoot me an email. Um, I would love to talk to anybody about this. I'm still gathering okay. intel.
0: And if you and if if you've got a couple minutes to stick around, if anybody wants to ask you questions, I'd. If you can't, I understand. But um, I mean, just people coming up yep. uh, afterwards. Let me pray for you and for us. Thank you. I know we're a little we're over time. I'm sorry. But uh, Tyler last week only went to 720, so I'm using some of his time from last week, okay? Uh, Lord God, we thank you for um, what you've given us through your son Jesus, uh, that he is the head and that uh, he is the one who leads us in understanding uh, how to do real community even in the midst of diversity uh, and in different opinions and the way we can sharpen each other. And so I pray that that would be uh, our not only our quest, but also our habit here at, at Redemption Church. And, and I pray for Will, and I thank you for him and um, just his passion for this topic. And I pray for his book. Uh, I pray just blessings on him and Danny and their family. And and I thank you for their, um, uh, their part at Redemption uh, Arcadia. And God, thank you for the time that we've been able to spend together. And, and I just pray that... Uh, This is uh, help people and open their eyes, but also challenge them uh, to know that we need to choose, actively choose to have healthy community. Uh, So God, uh, fill us with your Holy Spirit to be able to do that. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.